My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, everyone. This is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we speak with some of the brightest minds working in the media business today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. When the new movie Downton Abbey, The New Era, hits U.S. theaters this week, it will mark the fifth collaboration between my next guests. Julian Fellows is the Emmy-winning writer behind Downton, and Gareth Neem is the executive chairman of the movie's production outfit, Carnival Films. Together, they have overseen a property that has crossed over from mere global TV sensation to full-fledged franchise. And they're here to talk about this process coming up next on Strictly Business. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. 
like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. We're back with Julian Fellows and Gareth Neem, the architects behind Downton Abbey, which is returning to theaters this week for a sequel. Thanks for coming on the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. So, Julian, let's start with you. It's been probably about 13 years since Downton was first conceived and began. And so I have to ask, did you have any inkling back then about how big this would become, that this would eventually even jump over to movies? Um, no, the short answer to that is no. But um, I, I think it was, a, it was a different climate at that time when period drama was thought to have died uh, and that the audience wasn't there for it anymore. Uh, and uh, Gareth didn't believe that, uh, and uh, nor did I and nor did Peter at ITV. Uh, And so we were, in a sense, out to prove something. The idea was originally Gareth's, that he'd gone to see Gosford, uh, a park, a film I wrote. And uh, we were having dinner, actually, about another project uh, completely. But in the middle of it, he said, would you ever go back into that territory for television? And that was really the beginning of the idea, Uh, although, Downton is much warmer than Gosford. It's a much cuddlier place uh, where, you know, Gosford is all about compromises and uh, reluctant decisions and wrong decisions and so on. Whereas uh, on the whole in Downton, everyone is doing their best and it is essentially a warm world they live in. But nevertheless, you can see how the one was inspired by the other. Uh, and then it, we went forward, but actually it was it was quite eventless, wasn't it? Getting it going because uh, you went to Peter and you and that was it really. I think we had a meeting and I was commissioned to write one script and I wrote it and then they commissioned the series. Then we made the series. It was a rather trouble free journey. But of course, uh, to answer your question, no, we thought we could make a successful period. Drama, that was what we set out to do. We had a jolly good cast and um, and, and we did it. But the, the kind of enormous global phenomenon really started a year later when it came out in America and then it went all over the world and then it turned into a sort of magic carpet ride. Gareth, can you take us back to that time where the period drama seemed dead why did it seem dead and why did you think it could come back to life? Well, I, I don't quite agree with Julian in that respect. I, did, I never thought it was dead. Um, it's a perennial favourite. And uh, 
when I got to know Julian um, in the early 2000s, and, you know, I was, I'd not only, had, you know, I'd watched Gosford Park as a viewer, and I thought, you know, this, this was, just, you know, it was the attention to detail and it was the knowledge. Uh, it, I, I, I watched that film and I sort of relaxed into my theatre chair thinking this is the most realistic depiction that I've ever seen in my life. I've, and, and I think everything that came before it, I didn't really believe. And I now believe this. And then I started reading uh, some of Julian's novels and I thought, this is, and I mean, you know, the, the, the Academy Award that, that he won for the screenplay of Gossip Park should have been enough. But, you know, that combined with, the, with reading Julian's novels, I thought, this is a writer that has something to say right around the world and uh, is highly commercial <laughs> with my production company, hat on I just thought this is this is a you know and as a British producer I'm I'm always looking for expressly British topics um there are certain you know there are certain subjects that are done all over the world but the the English country house the class system the you know the the British empire and all that kind of thing is is a, a unique sort of British subject for drama and I thought this is a uh, you know really something that I think could be highly popular both in the UK and, and around the world so um and around the same time that I was getting to know Julian I, I watched I happened to see a, a historic episode of Upstairs Downstairs um, I didn't sit down and watch it but I was flicking through the channels one day and I find I found on channel you know 368 I found this 197 early 1970s episode of a, a show that had been popular in Britain and America called Upstairs Downstairs. It was a similar sort of setup, but I, I so I knew what the show was as soon as I alighted on, on the channel. I, I I knew what it was, but I'd never watched it. And I thought at the time I was about 40 or something, and I thought if I've never watched it because I was too young to have seen it, there's two generations, you know, behind me that have never have never been exposed to this. Um, and I thought, actually, you know what, this is this is a perennial favourite, and what Julian was doing in in in, in Gosford Park is something that would work as well, or, or or better actually, in episodic television because you play to the strengths of uh, you know a, a, an audience um, becoming familiar with the characters and taking them you know to their hearts and 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 becoming more more and more uh, vested in the whole in the whole thing and. Um, so yeah, so we, we so Julian and I met up, and I said, I think we should do this as an episodic TV series, and um, so that, that's how it came about. And as I say, I, I never thought the genre was over. It, it, it's a genre like many of these uh, genres that that that, uh, that need constantly reinventing. So Julian, I mean, it sounds like Gareth had a, a different take on it, and I want to go back to you. What at that time had you souring on the period drama? What needed to be reinvented? We just, uh, I'd had a couple of things turned down. I mean, in my personal life, a couple of things turned down because period drama, they didn't really want to get into it, you know. I mean, this happens from time to time with all different companies and channels and everything. It's not a big thing. But also, Peter, I keep forgetting his surname. What is his name at ITV? Well, the, the head of ITV then um, was called Peter Fincham. Fincham. Yeah. Um, he was telling me that when he decided to make um, Downton, a lot of his friends said, oh, no, that's, that's all finished, all that. You, you lose your shirt on that. You, you shouldn't do that, because it was obviously going to be very expensive. 
Um, so it was just the kind of thing I picked up. I mean, I don't suppose I thought it was dead forever because nothing is dead forever. The question is whether it's dead now. And, uh, and, and that was what he had been told and what I had been told. But it turned out that Gareth was right. It wasn't dead. Uh, and there was an audience for it. I suppose looking back, there just wasn't at that time a period drama that was a particularly big hit. And so it sort of kept it out of the footlights a bit. It, it, amu it amuses me a bit that you talk about it being expensive because, of course, that first season on television in uh, 2010, we now look back on it as being extraordinarily cheap compared to everything <laughs> now. Absolutely. And, of course, Downton, I think, without question, reinvigorated this genre. Fast forward to today where you gentlemen also have another hit uh, here in the U.S. on HBO with The Gilded Age. Netflix has its own version uh, with Bridgerton. Do you guys take credit for the reinvigoration of this genre? And how do you explain its enduring appeal? Well, I think that's possibly easier for me to answer than Julian. It feels a little less personal. Um, uh, you know, I do think that Downton, uh, that there's no question in my mind that it, that it, that it started a journey. Uh, not only one that, that, that um, rediscovered uh, period drama and and put it front and center, but but also of course uh, globalized um, uh, television production. It was uh, Downton was the most successful non-American television show in the U.S. Um, and um, it was the first foreign show that really um, delivered a value globally that was equivalent to a Hollywood um, TV series. So it was in that sense absolutely groundbreaking and it also caused all of the other you know i mean i by the time we we made downton i my company i sold the company to universal so we were already part of the, the hollywood uh the, the u.s media landscape but it caused all the other competitors to send executives to london uh and you know now we now we see all the studios uh for, for many years now have had london uh, operations and you know Netflix are very big in in the rest of the world headquartered out of London um Apple um Amazon uh you know it really uh, opened the door to 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 the idea that that uh, a, a foreign show could be as successful globally and could make as much money and that was the simple fact um and yes you'll you, you I won't repeat all the, the examples that 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 you've uh, you've given us that, that there are other shows that you, well actually I will I mean yes Bridgerton but I think it's impossible to imagine um Netflix uh, making the crown without the success that Downton Abbey had glo globally so I think it really did unlock a great big cre you know, the creative potential that was there anyway and Downton really um began that uh, journey I think we were also though part of a movement that had sort of started in America with the reinvention of serial television, uh, with E.R. and West Wing and Mad Men and, and, you know, good, all of these shows, uh, where they had taken the multi-arc storylines of the endless 16 stories happening in one episode and all the rest of it, which um, I'd sort of learned from Altman and then gone on with. Uh, but I think we quite deliberately uh, structured that. I mean, it looked incredibly English and it sounded incredibly English. 
But in fact, its structure had more in common with those American shows that had reinvented television than it did with sort of Jewel in the Crown or something of 20 or 30 years before. Uh, and it was this kind of television for people with attention deficit disorder, you know, with 16 things happening simultaneously uh, that I think invigorated period drama and made it seem modern and and. Uh, very watchable and so on. Uh, and we were part of that rebirth, really, uh, of television. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We had this, I remember that first dinner when we when we cooked up this idea. It was a strange mix we talked about of um, all of the English, sort of the, the classic um, English drama of Merchant Ivory, if, you, if you're familiar with those films from, from the 80s, the sort of, you know, the country house and the aristocracy and the class and the uh, uh you know the sort of a comedy of manners um but with the pace of storytelling of west wing and and the west wing analogy we used a lot because the west wing is about an entire uh you know workplace that is all, where, where you've got dozens of people who are all doing their thing serving one man who is the president and we saw the connection uh with this new idea that we had that this was going to be about dozens of people who were all there to serve um, Lord Grantham and his family, so, uh, and and mostly in one environment. You know, it is it is sort of in one place. So, yes, it was that sort of West Wing pace of storytelling and, and focus um, combined with the lavish, um, you know, uh, in English charm of Merchant Ivory. Well, after producing six seasons of television, you made the jump with a uh, to the movies with a, a first hit. $238 million in global box office, which I, I would assume you guys realize was certainly not guaranteed. There's been plenty of TV shows, successful shows that have failed to make the jump to theaters. What was it about Downton that you think enabled it to succeed to the point where here you are with a, a second one? Who's going to answer that? I, I, I think I have an idea which is that although, I mean, you're quite right, this, this was the gamble, this was the question mark, was would we succeed in making the transition because plenty of people haven't in the past. But um, I think the conception of Downton was quite cinematic when it was on television. Uh, and it was quite deliberately photographed. If you remember, the very first shot of the very first episode was, an enormous traveling shot of where you went through all the drawing rooms and libraries and you walked into the hall and you went round. It was all a continuous shot. That was a very filmic opening. I mean, it was rather like the famous uh, one of Orson Welles or whatever. Uh, and I think always because the house was a principal character, we had a sort of scale of the visual side of the show that was essentially cinematic. And all the cinema would do was give us more opportunity to exploit the house and, and be able to show more of it and more of the scale and that, you know, these aerial shots and all the rest of it. So I don't think we have to change. I mean, normally, when a television show becomes a film, it's quite difficult because it looks different. It is differently conceived and you don't feel you're coming home. Whereas we didn't have that. We were able legitimately to, you know, to bring the house onto the big screen and, and get even more out of it, frankly. So I think that made it, made it easier. But I mean, you know, 
it's, there's a lot of luck in these things. I don't think we should ever forget that. I agree about the cinema, the, the sort of the sort of sense of cinema about that the, the was inherent in the show, which is unlike a lot of um, television, particularly television at the time. Perhaps not so much now, but at the time there, there was television and, and film, and I think we we already filled that small screen. So the sense of you know that goes back again to that the, you know the, the the merchant ivory sort of um uh you know starting point it had that rich full screen idea to it but i think the other thing is that we ended the television show you know we quit early i think you know we it, this wasn't a television series that went on for eight se- seasons or or nine or ten and then, like shows you i mean no no nothing does now but uh, but you know, t- 10, 20 years ago, it was about really uh, squeezing as much as you possibly could out of episodic television. And we didn't do that. We got out, I, I think we feel we got out a year or two earlier than we might have done. And I think that really did leave the fans thinking it wasn't quite over. Um, so there was certainly an appetite um, uh, for these characters again. Listening to the Strictly Business podcast, we'll be back in a second with more with Julian Fellows and Gareth Neem. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that, plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. back talking with Julian Fellows and Gareth Neem, the architects behind Downton Abbey, which is back in theaters this week with the sequel titled The New Era. We were just talking about translating the movie, sorry, translating the intellectual property to the movies. The New Era movie is, I think, releasing into a, a very different climate than the last one. 
Uh, it's become a very challenged place in theaters for pretty much anything that's not a, a Marvel superhero movie or a, or a horror film. Um, Gareth, do you have any apprehension about how Downton will resonate this time around? Yes, these are, of course, these are challenging times. And we were very lucky with the, the first movie. Um, I feel that we, we, we hit the, the sweet spot, um, having you know, released in uh, September 2019, and it um, finished its uh, theatrical run globally um, you know, by the end of 2019. So the timing was um, very fortunate. Um, and really, uh, you know, this second installment of Downton has filled the space ever since. We started, uh, uh, Julian and I worked on the script in the first lockdown um, of, of 2020, the spring of 2020, and we got the film together that autumn. And then making the film in 2021 was very challenging um, uh, uh, because of all of the lockdowns and the COVID protocols and all of that. So all the way through making this, this was a film you know, like many other films and TV shows have been made in this uh, new culture. Um, so yes, we, we go out into the world in, in very different times and uh, where um, the sequencing of um, distribution is different, where, where um, you know, films, uh, uh, you know, come to other platforms much more quickly than they did even three years ago. So that, there's no doubt about it, the whole landscape is uh, very, very different to what it was uh, just three years ago. And, and Julian, you know, it's entirely possible, given how unpredictable this COVID marketplace is, that your film could have potentially not have released in theaters. It could have gone straight to streaming or something like that. Would that have been a problem for you? You've talked about how Downton is such a distinctly cinematic experience. Are you glad that it's going to actually be in cinemas? Oh, of course I'm glad, yes, uh, because as you say quite rightly, there was a real possibility at one point that it wouldn't be. And indeed, uh, I made another film during lockdown, which was hardly in cinemas uh, and went straight onto a platform because you couldn't get anyone to leave the house. Uh, so uh, there, there's always that side. But I mean, actually, the truth is we have lived through a sort of 10 or 20 year period when the nature of release, uh, of showing, of the demonstration of the platforms where, where ordinary old terrestrial channels now seem like some sort of Victorian table draping. Uh, you know, everything has changed. And I think you just have to try and keep your feet uh, and rock and roll with what's happening. What I do think is that, um, you know, there's a big audience for this film, uh, for when it sounds rather vain to say that, but but for when it does hit a platform, because I was attacked in my hotel uh, this morning by a woman at breakfast who said, my husband is 86 and will not go into a cinema. He wants to know when it's going to be on a platform. And, and uh, of course, I know nothing, you know, uh, but I, I think there are quite a lot of that generation who will wait to see it until they feel they can do so safely. So we just have to see what effect that has on us. But, uh, you know, I'm happy and I'm happy uh, that it's in cinemas in Britain already. And the, and the, the feedback we're getting uh, is, is obviously very nice. But on the other hand, that's mainly from one's friends. So that's, that's what they would say, wouldn't they? But um, nevertheless, it seems quite positive.
Well, and I, I would say all, all um, due respect to that lady and her elderly husband. But, um, you know, we do want we do want fans um, to come back to theatres. Uh, you know, um, you know, America is is the home of cinema. And that's the you know, it, it's it, it's the largest market. But it's, it's the rest of the markets in the world all put together. And we want people to come to theatres to see this because it is beloved titles that, that like Downton that will bring people back to theatres. And, you know, as much as I have, you know, huge awe and utter respect for Marvel and all that it does, we do not want movie theatres to become just about Marvel. And we want the fans of Downton to come and see it and for this to be the title that they come back to theatres uh, and, and enjoy, you know, in that, that shared experience. This is uh, a very moving film and a very funny film. I mean, it's um, the first film was very funny. And, you know, in these actors, we have extremely good comedic actors as well as dramatic actors. And Julian's writing, the great genius of it is the mix of dr drama, um, romance, all these things. But, you know, a healthy dose of um, comedy in the writing as well. And this is a very funny film. And I think it's, a, you know, Julian and I have seen it a few times now with audiences in theatres. And it is a great audience experience so with great respect to the late 80s gentleman who's going to watch <laughs> it at home and i hope he and his wife absolutely love it and many others will see it that way as well for those he'll of us tell me love... off later he'll <laughs> tell me <laughs> off for saying that for those of us who for those of us who love the movie going experience you know i really hope we'll pull the stops out and come out and and return to theaters like we used to Gareth, you just used the M word, Marvel, and so I'm going to use the F word, franchise. Do you see Downton as a franchise in the way Marvel or James Bond is considered a franchise? Because I would think after six seasons of TV, two movies, who knows how many more, is it okay to use the F word? Well, I suppose it might be a kind of franchise, but... Um the comparisons that you offer up are so radically different that, you know, I mean, not a superhero in sight and all, and all of that. Um, you know, it, it's a different kind of franchise, if it is. It clearly um, Julian created a, and, and the characters were realised by these, these fantastic actors, something that, um, that audiences don't want to let go of and there's something about that world and the the um you know it's possibly one of the most successful depictions of a family over a long period of time ever um ever enjoyed on screen actually and people uh, connect with that and they don't want to let it go so i think we we both feel that you know we we hope there's more and um there's more to do and uh but um possibly quite a unique franchise compared to any other that you could <laughs> that you could reference yes i mean i think uh, people say do you think it's finished i mean you know lives aren't finished until people die and uh, characters aren't finished until they die there's there's uh, there's nothing more to say about that we can go on with these people as long as the audience wants to go on seeing them uh, and as long as they enjoy them uh, and we can, you know, do that in all sorts of different ways. I don't know if that makes it a franchise or a phenomenon, but either way, I don't see any reason to call a halt. But if there's still an appetite in a market, really.
Well, to that end, Julian, are you already thinking about, huh, what could a third movie, a fourth movie, a, a spin-off TV show? I mean, are you thinking like that? Well, I think it's impossible not to think like that a bit. Uh, because, you know, the, there's, these possibilities exist and one doesn't want to just sit there slack-jawed and glassy-eyed if the topic comes up. Um, so I think we are, or I am, uh, exploring uh, what might work. But, um, you know, we've seen them develop. I mean, one of the storylines of this film is that the final kind of uh, revealing of Mary as being in charge and as running the place and also in her own storyline showing that she is capable of the different behaviours uh, and, and adjustments that are required in the early to mid 20th century uh, so that she's perfectly able to have a normal conversation with the producer director uh, and you know there's that moment when she's uh, on the set and he, he says oh lady mary so he says just mary please and and you realize that she's making herself modern in a way that would be beyond her father so we're already if you like taking it on into the next stage where she's concerned uh, in this film so i don't see any reason why well, we can't go on because, you know, these families did exist, do exist. One of them lives in in um, the house where we film in Highclere, uh, and they're still there. And obviously getting through those years, some of the very difficult ones, meant lots of imagination and getting down to it and taking different tacks. Uh, and I think there's a story of the house's survival to be told. So, uh, you know, there's there's no reason that you can't go on with it. I mean, there is the moment, if a series is about the war, there's a moment when the war comes to an end, but this war never comes to an end. So uh, I, I don't see why we couldn't go on. I, I would agree. I could see this, if I may call it a franchise, go on for decades. And Gareth, you know, you're over uh, Carnival Films as part of the NBC Universal family where they know franchise maintenance. Big cultural difference, but I'm going to mention a movie like Fast and Furious. And I just wonder whether, you know, the top dogs at uh, Comcast haven't spoken to you about how do we keep this going 10, 20 years? Or are you starting to speak the language of franchise, but in the, the specialty film marketplace? Uh, you know, we, Downton is definitely in that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the Holy Grail. It's part of that, um, you know, it's in the special, it's in the VIP lounge. Um, and it's, it's the kind of content really that all these studios uh, look to achieve. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't do that by setting out to make a huge TV and movie franchise that we, you know, and, and nobody ever should approach it that way. Julian and I sat down, uh, 15 years ago over dinner and had an idea for something that we thought might, you know, might work, but it was something we wanted to make and we thought it might be popular. And this is the great attraction of, um, you know, as, as, you know, as a producer is that you might create, you know, once or twice, if you're lucky in a career, you might create some content that is there for the, for the, for the long haul. And um, I agree. I echo what Julian says that um, we've got to be, 
you know, wise to the future and think of those possibilities. Um, and uh, any number of things could happen in the future. And that's all very exciting. And, and we'll see. But uh, you're, you're right. Your question is a good one. You know, we, we're, we're in a we're part of a company whose job it is to um, make the most of this exceptional content. When these companies create that content, they should make the most of it because there is an app, you know, A, they can make money from it. But audiences love it and when audiences love something well that's what we came into this job for well i don't think you could end on an any better note than that i'm looking forward to the future of this franchise julian fellows and gareth neem thank you for joining me today on strictly business well thank you for asking us good to see you This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. Hey.